Welcome to the money growth and inflation segment of macroeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Eland coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So up to this point, we've talked about how to measure inflation using the consumer price index approach or using the GDP deflator approach, but we really haven't dived into what causes inflation and what kind of costs are associated with inflation. So what's the kind of uh, cause of inflation? Well, first off, let's just make sure inflation, the topic behind it is clear. Well, the word inflation means an increase in the overall price level in an economy, whereas deflation would be a fall in the overall level of prices in the economy. So if you think of the whole economy and there's just like a few products that suddenly become more expensive, that would not be considered inflation. It could be due to a drought that hit a certain uh, agricultural uh, uh, sector and then all of those products are now more expensive or a forest fire led to something else. So th those are things that we would have an increase in the price level, but it'd be pretty um, focused on a, a few key industries. When we think of inflation in general, it's, it's hitting most of the economy. So it's a situation where most goods that you buy and you think about the same goods you could have purchased 10 years ago, well, all of those goods at the grocery store, your clothing, your car, gasoline, rent, just about anything has increased in price. Therefore, that is what we consider inflation. So inflation necessarily means that everything costs more expensive and because everything is now more expensive it means that uh, it's the equivalent of saying that the price level has gone up or your purchasing power for every dollar has gone down so some people see inflation as a bad thing and we'll see the, the various things that inflation could be bad about in terms of if you have a bunch of savings or a bunch of money hidden uh, under your mattress well, over time, that same $100 bill is not going to be able to purchase as much as before. So that's definitely a bad thing. But uh, we'll understand some of the costs. And actually, there is some advantages that we'll get to know in the future about uh, why low stable inflation may not be that bad to an economy. So to understand where inflation comes from, there is this equation that's called the quantity theory of money. It's not an equation that is uh, overly evaluated in this class. Like it's not something I'd want you guys to spend too much time on. But there's a lot of interesting conclusions coming from this quantity theory of money equation. And you could kind of associate that to the concept of the inflation fairy in the notes as well. If you were to double the amount of money that everyone has overnight, like let's say you everyone has a certain level of savings and you're traveling or you're at home and all of a sudden you have double or you have 10 times the amount of money as before. Well, naturally, if there's a lot of people that have more money, everyone's going to want to purchase more. They'll, they'll want to be able to buy that car that they never could afford in the past. They'll want to be able to buy that stereo, that uh, pay for that trip, that boat, that skidoo, whatever. They'll want to buy stuff with it. 
Well, if everyone has more money and everyone's wanting to buy more product, but there hasn't been an increase in product, it means that it's going to put an upward pressure on the prices. Otherwise, everything's going to get liquidated really fast. Everything's going to be bought. And when that moment hits, uh, the people that actually still have the product will be able to sell it for a lot more. And a bunch of different things will happen, but essentially the outcome of this story is that if you keep the number of goods stable and you just increase the amount of money in circulation, it's just going to make it that uh, everyone's going to be able to buy more initially. They'll feel that way. But in reality, all the prices of all the goods, because they, they haven't changed in quantity, will become more expensive. So this is what the quantity theory of money equation kind of tells us. If we kind of dive into it a little bit, you have two sides of the equation. You have one side as money times velocity of money, which is the number of times each dollar bills changes hands in the economy. And velocity of the money, unless there's new technologies that come through, is typically stable. So when the credit card or when other kind of technologies kind of came to be, um, the velocity could have increased. But if you think of one year to the next, if the way we consume, the way we pay for things doesn't change, the velocity is, is pretty stable. So if I assume that velocity is stable, while on the left side I have the money, quantity of money in circulation, and on the right side, I have the overall price level and the output. So as I mentioned, if the output doesn't change and you have an increase of 100% of the amount of money in circulation, I would expect, as this equation states, that the price level would go up by 100%. And that makes sense because uh, you shouldn't be able to buy a whole lot more goods, even though everyone has more money, if there's not more goods out there. However, if uh, let's say the money supply actually only increases by 5% and during that year we've increased production by 3%, well, you could think, well, there's a 3% increase in output, 5% increase in money, that's greater. So there still has to be an inflationary pressure. The price level has to go up. And in very simple terms, like without calculating it through, you'd expect something like 2% increase in the price level. So that increase in money supply would kind of have an impact with uh, an increase in Y, uh, an increase in output, and also with an increase in the price level. If you think about it, uh, if price levels didn't change and you had the same increase in the money supply and output, that would also work out. But overall, uh, if you think of most of the large economies, we have a pretty steady increase in output. Sometimes we hit recessions, pandemics, and that level of production, GDP actually falls. But overall, historically, like except a few boom years, we'd expect to have a pretty stable increase in output. So as soon as you increase money supply by a greater amount than that increase in output, you're ultimately leading to inflation. So that is the biggest thing that leads to inflation. It's an increase in the money supply. And uh, you could think about like temporary bubbles or the, the, the government overheating the economy through what we will get to know as fiscal policy, which is an increase in government spending or decrease in taxes, which could stimulate the economy or make it overheat a little bit, create a kind of a bubble and have an increase in the price level. But that will be kind of short lived. But if you think of the extreme cases of hyperinflation and which is high levels of inflation in all of those cases, it is purely caused by 
and increasing the quantity of money. So if you look at the notes, you'll see a bunch of different graphs that show that link. That will show the link between uh, increase in money supply and an increase in price level or inflation. There's one that shows a bunch of different countries and it's pretty much a perfect correlation between the, the percentage change in money supply and the percentage change in the price level. And then you'll have um, some other examples of hyperinflation cases in history and you'll see that in all of those cases, the money supply increased, which led to this massive increase in the price level. So how could the government achieve a 0% increase in the price level? Well, you would have to have a situation where money supply increases yearly are very low and they're equal to the increase in the output. In other cases, they're always going to be a little bit higher than the increase in the output, and that's going to lead to some level of inflation. What are some of the reasons why there is this increase in the uh, amount of money in circulation? Well, historically, or not even historically, there's different ways that the government could finance its expenditures. So if you think of a developed country such as Canada, if you think of all the spending that the federal government and the provincial governments have to pay, well, a lot of that spending is financed by our taxes. A lot of things that we have access to, our roads, our school system, our health care, it's all financed through our income taxes, sales taxes, and the other kind of taxes out there. So... We're lucky in a certain way that we can uh, be self-sufficient in the way that and it's easy to track people down and have them pay their taxes. Another way that the government could finance its expenditures is by borrowing money. So this could be done by bonds and other financial instruments that they could borrow from the population in a given time period. But if you think of a poor country where a lot of people are hard to track down, it's very rural and uh, they just don't have the infrastructure that we have, it would be very hard to tax the whole population. Maybe some people are easy to track down and easy to tax, but generally speaking, if not the whole population is easy to tax, well, then you have a situation where uh, you just can't rely on that entirely. And if you're in one of those poorer countries where um, you have a less stable financial system, the people that actually have money in those countries might not be interested in buying bonds of that country because they don't uh, have faith in uh, the government and they don't have faith that they'll get their money back. So if they have an excess amount of money, they might be buying American bonds or bonds from other countries. Therefore, if those two techniques are not very feasible or are not available, the other technique is to have the government print money to finance its expenditures. That's just a very simple and crude way of explaining it, but that's pretty much it. So if you were to print a lot of money to pay off expenses, pay off debt, sometimes I hear students before taking this class or as the semester goes, they say, well, if we have a lot of debt, why don't we just print a lot of money and pay off that debt? Well, when you print a lot of money and to pay off a debt as being the government, or if you're a corrupt government, that you're printing a lot of money to enrich yourself, well, as we've just seen, printing a lot of money release, re reduces the purchasing power of every one of those dollars. It doesn't mean that it falls to a situation where it's not worthwhile for the government to do so, but as they're doing so, 
we often see printing money as an inflation tax because as the government prints more money and if they keep all that money to themselves compared to the inflation fairy example where that money is distributed to everyone they keep the money themselves they are relatively speaking enriching themselves uh, which could be bad if it's a corrupt state and it could be okay if it's to pay off expenditures to finance social services but everyone else in the economy is getting hurt everyone who has money in the economy is getting hurt because the purchasing power of that money is going down and this is what happened in all the hyperinflation kind of cases uh, so the more recent ones with Zimbabwe was more about enriching themselves and some of the ones were more about just trying to get out of a bad situation so what are the costs associated to inflation uh, well the main cost that we see in terms of inflation except this inflation tax which i just mentioned that hurts uh, money holders is the menu costs and the shoe leather costs so right now we're discussing the costs associated to inflation regardless of the rate the higher the rate the higher the co these costs will be and later on at the very end of the semester we'll see the costs relating to letting inflation get out of hand and wanting to reduce inflation expectations. These are two different stories. So here we could be looking at having 5% steady inflation year after year after year, and it's gonna to lead to menu costs and shoe leather costs. But if at some point we let the inflation rate get higher, or we wanna reduce that expectation from five to 2%, well, there's gonna be a certain cost involved in changing people's expectations and all of that process will be discussed at the very end of this class so here the direct costs of inflation well we have menu costs which is a if you think about it the the word kind of explains it if you have a menu at a restaurant and there's inflation well every so often you have to print new menus you have to uh, go through that whole process again and pay for that expense so there's a certain cost involved with always changing in prices if you're home depot or any other big box store and you have to constantly update all the prices of your thousands and thousands of products it could be a very costly endeavor if we imagine on the other hand that there was no inflation and that same menu could be used for 20 years 30 years 50 years and the same thing for the database of home depot it'd be less costly the higher the inflation rate, the higher the menu cost because the, those menus will have to be updated more frequently. Shoe leather costs, on the other hand, comes from the whole idea in the past that shoes had leather under them and that if you'd walk around a lot, that leather would get worn out. So shoe leather costs comes from the idea that you're walking around a lot to do a lot of transactions. Well, if there's a lot of inflation, you would be continuously running from, let's say you get money paid, you get a check. Well, in the old days when you would get checks and not direct deposits, well, you would go to the bank quickly to deposit this money and to buy potentially a, an asset that uh, does not lower its value with inflation. So a stock in a company or another form of asset. And then when you'd go to do your groceries, well, you'd have to get this asset converted back to cash so that you can make purchases 
So there's a lot of walking around uh, involved. Or if we think more recently, if, if we think of direct deposits, there'd be a lot of transaction costs involved and you kind of investing that money and uh, investing is, once again, not the word that we use in this class, saving that money and you buying like a stock or a mutual fund or something that's sheltered by inflation. And then when you need that money, you take that money out. But every time you do so, there's transaction costs involved. Therefore, and there's time also involved, so therefore there's a cost associated with them. If inflation rates are low and you know you're getting paid today and uh, you need to this money in a week, you don't really have much issue just leaving it in your bank account. But if inflation rates were like a thousand percent, you'd probably want to shelter that from inflation as much as possible just because you're losing a lot of purchasing power by just leaving it as a cash equivalent in your bank account. But otherwise, if you think about inflation, for people working, if their wages get adjusted with inflation, you're not really hurt. So let's say your everything you buy goes up by 2%, but your salary goes up by 2%, you could afford the same basket of goods, the same goods as you could before. So inflation on its own is not necessarily that detrimental to most people. As long as you're aware that it's there and that you're able to negotiate salary rises that reflect that level of inflation, you're not necessarily getting poor with inflation. So inflation is not necessarily a bad thing. There is a discussion about inflation and taxes, um, which I think it's good to practice. There is a, a question on it in the textbook, and I'd say to kind of play around with it. It's not something that's commonly evaluated on uh, the exams or quizzes, but you'd want to be able to figure it out. And the whole idea here is that when you pay taxes on your gains from uh, different savings that you may have, well, those taxes are based on the nominal gains. So if you put something aside, some money aside, and you get 10% on it, well, that 10% is the nominal return that you get. And the government will say, well, you put 1,000 aside, you got 10%, 100. So out of that 100, unless it's in a tax-free savings account or something along those lines, you will owe the government part of those earnings as if, as if this $100 was an extra $100 of income uh, that, you, that you worked to get. So then you give a portion of that money back. And, uh, but in reality, that $100 is not really your increase in purchasing power before the taxes. Because maybe in that same year, there was like 9% inflation. And in that case, you would have only gained like $10 of purchasing power because out of that $100 that uh, you got of interest income, all the goods went up by 90. So your purchasing power really just increased by that extra 10. But if you get taxed 50% on that $100, well, the government takes away $50. So you're left with $50 and the prices went up by 90. So you're actually worse off. So that's one of the issues with inflation and taxes. So I know some people are less strong with this kind of uh, process or thinking uh, with regards to numbers and calculations, but I think it's worthwhile keeping it, uh, uh, knowing how it works and uh, knowing the repercussions of nominal versus real and taxation. Is deflation bad? So. The whole idea here is sometimes some people would argue, well, 
why don't we target 0% inflation instead of 2% inflation? And that could be a possibility. But the problem with 0% inflation is that because it goes up and down, some years are within that target. So if we think of the inflation target, it's 2% since 1991. Well, that 2% has a 1% to 3% target. So like the target is 2, but the range that they accepts is 1 to 3. Well, if you were to target 0, that range that would be acceptable would be between minus 1 and 1. And the problem that happens when you have deflation or a decrease in the price level is that deflation can make things worse and make it even worse and even worse over time. What I mean by that is if you're going if you're expecting to buy a big ticket item and you know that it's currently selling for 200,000 and you know that prices are falling. If you wait a bit, you'll be able to get it for 197,000. If you wait a bit more, you might get it for 194. If you wait a bit more, you'll get it for even less. So having a decrease in the price level actually makes people delay their purchases. In some cases, that wouldn't be the biggest deal. But if you imagine like people are delaying their purchases of shoes, of clothing, of maybe not food because you have to eat, but of many big purchases, uh, you have a situation where these producers who are producing these goods uh, cannot sell them because people are not buying them right now. They're waiting for the prices to drop more. If they're not selling, they're laying off their workers. As they're laying off their workers, these people no longer have jobs. And then uh, prices will draw drive even further down because the, we're going into a recession. And things will just get worse and worse and worse. So actually, it's better to have a small positive inflation than a small negative inflation, uh, typically speaking. Because at least with a small positive inflation, people are still in incentivized to consume. Therefore, even though we're going through a small recession, we're not ending up in a situation where people are buying less and less and just keeping their money to themselves. And then it just completely hurts the economy. So then when we talk about inflation and the target of 1% to 3% with uh, the goal being 2%, here... Typically, you'll hear about core inflation versus consumer price index inflation. So consumer price index inflation accounted for many different goods. Uh, you could find those goods on Statistics Canada. Uh, and the whole idea here of core is to removing those most volatile components. Because if you were to keep the very volatile components, it would be very hard to keep that within the range. It doesn't mean that the volatile components don't have an impact on all the other ones and therefore they're still kind of accounted for. It's just we're not taking into account uh, to its full value. So if I think of gasoline, like gasoline fluctuates in price so much. Like I remember some years it went up to by nearly 50% in one year and then the next year it dropped by so many percentages. So as it fluctuates, it has a massive impact on uh, CPI inflation because it's part of uh, representative consumers consumption but the problem with that is if you have like a bunch of things that are going up by two percent and you have one of the goods that consumers consume go up by 50 percent it's going to be hard to get that target within that one to three percent range because this one's just kind of pulling you so much in one direction but what I meant by it's still embedded in the other goods well if Gasoline goes up by 50%. Even though we don't take into account gasoline and core inflation, 
you still take into account that some of the goods that you might be buying are now more expensive because transport costs are more expensive. Flying goods over are more expensive, driving them around are more expensive. So typically the other goods kind of follow suit and that's still accounted for in core inflation. So there's graph that shows that generally speaking over the years, uh, Canada has been pretty successful at maintaining core inflation close to that 2% range and within that one to 3% range. It's just barely kind of gone through at some uh, moments, but overall it's, if we just remove those volatile components, uh, they've been pretty successful. So hopefully this clarifies where inflation uh, comes from, what creates it. So later on in this chapter, when we'll be comparing and contrasting fiscal and monetary policy, something that has to be clear is that the only cause of sustained hyperinflation is monetary policy or anything that deals with the amount of money in circulation. That's the only way that we could have it. If you just increase government deficit by spending more, you can lead to a certain level of inflation, but it's going to be short-lived. At some point, this government's going to run out of money. Uh, it's just going to be too indebted to borrow more and to spend more and to tax less. So it has a limit. Whereas printing money, it's limitless. Since we have the power of the printing press, it's just completely limitless. So even though they have that limitless power, there are costs associated to it, which are uh, detrimental to society. Therefore, it has to be properly managed. And now we talked about the target. And at the very end of this class, we'll talk about why it's important to have a target. And even though we're going through periods of recessions, why the government does not want to allow inflation to get between that one to three percent range and to get to like four or five some people would say it's no big deal let's just get out of this recession quick well if you let inflation get beyond what we're currently expecting it's going to have a big influence on how people negotiate for higher wages in the future with their collective agreements and all of that will lead to this kind of spiral effect that's going to be uh, very hard to come out of and very costly uh, for society in terms of loss of production and everything else. But we'll get to that at the very end of this class. I hope you guys enjoyed it and I'll talk to you soon.